Jerusalem in the distance Little donkey standing by Disciples gather around Jesus Prepare for his triumphant ride We've been following this Jesus He heals the sick and makes them clean Oh, the things that have happened in these past few days The wonders and the miracles we've seen See the Pharisees in the shadows Jesus threatening their power This Galilean prophet is a danger More people follow by the hour More people follow by the hour Here he comes on a donkey Riding into town And he's not quite the Messiah we expected Still we laid our palm leaves on the ground Still we laid our cloaks upon the ground And we shouted Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord The King of Israel Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord Hosanna to the King Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord the King of Israel Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord And so the story goes on would have been a, an interesting time to be walking through Jerusalem, I'm sure, with all this going on. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem and to all the praise of the people and they're flocking around him and they're laying their cloaks down, they're laying the palm leaves down like rolling out the red carpet. And a lot of them have been following him for quite a while now because they've been with him and they've watched his miracles not the least of which was the raising of Lazarus, which wasn't that uh, long ago. And many of the Jewish leaders also have seen him perform miracles. They've gone out to see what's going on as well. And the people, well, they saw Jesus as the one who had come to maybe rescue them from Roman rule, to save them. The Pharisees, on the other hand, well, they had a whole different idea. They were threatened by him. Their power was threatened, their authority was threatened. And already they were starting to plot how they'd get rid of him. They paid attention to him, all right, 
But had the Pharisees paid attention really, really well and looked at the scriptures that they knew so, so well, they really prided themselves on knowing the scriptures well. Had they listened to John the Baptist and had they listened to the scriptures and had they watched Jesus and seen what was going on, when it comes to the word Messiah, they might have put two and two together and it might have equaled Jesus. But that's not how it worked. Their own pride was in the way, their own want and lust for authority. So let's step back a couple of years. And I want to take you um, to the early uh, part of John, the Gospel of John. And I'm going to take you out into the desert of Judea. And when we head out there, we see a crowd of people coming out from Jerusalem and they're also coming out from around the surrounding areas, the surrounding countryside, to listen to this really rough-looking guy. Unkempt hair, matted beard, clothes made out of camel's hair. He seems to have a leather belt around his waist and some people even say when he dines out it's on locusts and wild honey. And his name is John. John the Baptist, they're calling him. And a prophet... 700 years before that, by the name of Isaiah, prophesied about a messenger that would come prior to the Messiah actually coming along. And in Isaiah 40, verse 3, we read, he describes it as a voice of one calling out in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And John was out in the desert doing just that. And John the Baptist, well, he knew also that this was the work that God would have him do. And we know that because when the Pharisees were out there, they came out to find out who he was. And they said, who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And he said, no, I'm not. And they said, well, then who are you? And he answers them straight out of this prophecy in Isaiah. And he says to them, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. And the Pharisees looked at him. And the people did come to John. And he did prepare the way for the Messiah. And they came into the Jordan and they repented for their sin and they were baptised. And the next day after these Pharisees had been there, John looks up and he sees Jesus coming towards him. I reckon he would have stopped. And in awe, he would have looked, knowing exactly who this was, because God had revealed to him who Jesus was. And then he provides us with one of the most wonderful and profound moments in the New Testament, or let alone in the, in the Bible, by pronouncing and announcing to those who were there with him, and at the same time as announcing it to them, he was also announcing it to the nation of Israel, and reality is he was also announcing it to the world. And these were the words that he announced. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw a spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. Wow. What a proclamation, what a, a revelation. 
that that is. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I testify that this is the Son of God. People listening to him would have gone, And the Pharisees, had they been there, and I don't know if they were, they were there the day before, but I'm sure they heard it from those who were out in the desert at the Jordan River. They would have been shocked, but they also would have been angry uh, too to hear these things. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What would the people have made of that? They knew the Lamb, okay. Well, they knew that lambs were sacrificed for sins because every morning and every evening in the temple, that's what they did. And at Passover, Nathan explained to us last week that thousands of lambs were slaughtered too. So they knew about lambs and they knew about sin. And when John used uh, these words, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, what he was actually doing, and this is particularly for people who don't know the Lord, who here this morning may not be Christians, this is what he actually meant. He was actually identifying, and I'm going to get into this so you can understand this, He was identifying the sacrifice that Jesus would become on the cross to save people from their sin forever, once and for all. In other words, the sacrifices that they used to give in the Old Testament would no longer be needed. We would no longer need to shed the blood of animals because Jesus, in obedience to his Father, would go to the cross and become that sacrifice for us. If you're new to this story, hang on a bit. Hang on a bit. If you know this story well, you will understand these things. So come to the cross with me. Thanks, Fran, for doing this for us this morning. Just a reminder again of the um, crown of thorns uh, to us. It's made from uh, barbed wire there and obviously the blood uh, with the red. Let's try and understand together because I have been reading all the different accounts during the week and I can't believe that I've been a Christian since I was 15 years old and yet there are still things uh, that are very, very deep uh, in this. Uh, let's, so let's together try and find its, um, its purpose, its mystery, and how we should view uh, the cross. It's such a huge, huge thing to grasp. And one of the difficult things for me uh, is when we sing songs of the cross, um, that's, I become quite emotional with that, understanding having, having had Christ come and save me from my own sin, just to, to sing those songs about the cross is uh, particularly difficult sometimes. And somebody once said that it's difficult for us to embrace the cross in a day when personal enjoyment is king. That's a day and age we live in. We want to be comfortable. It's all about us. We don't want anything that's too hard. And you know what? Even sometimes Christians, when it comes to Good Friday, we want to deal with the happenings of this day and this pain and the torture and the injustice goes with it. And we quickly want to run to Sunday so we can get to all the good bits. We want to embrace the resurrection. But Jesus also calls us to the cross. You hear in many sermons, you hear um, say, um, today is Friday, but Sunday's coming. And that's very, very true. But you know what? The point of the story is that Friday was the road to Sunday. There is no resurrection without the cross. There is no Easter Sunday without Good Friday. Have a listen to what Edwin Lutzer says Uh, in the introduction of his book entitled Cries from the Cross. This is one that Nathan gave me to look at. It's a wonderful book, um, tremendous book, and you might want to come and have a look at this a little later or get a um, copy for yourself. 
Contrary to popular belief, the central message of Christianity is not the Sermon on the Mount or Jesus' parables about love towards one's neighbours. The message that changed the first century world was that human beings are guilty, helplessly guilty of sins for which they cannot atone. The cross shatters all pride and undercuts the ultimate value of self-effort. The cross stands as proof of God's great love, but also reveals our own ugliness. Incredibly, the disciples proclaimed that this cruel, humiliating execution of Jesus was God's most wondrous saving event. No wonder people have trouble with that. Where there is injustice, where there is pain, people saying it's not fair. It's not fair and yet this was an amazing act of God. It was our ugly sin that nailed him to the cross. Hang with me if you're still not quite getting this. We are the guilty ones. We are the ones to blame. It's easy to blame others. It's easy. What about Judas? What about him? Well, he went out, he was with Jesus and, and like, you know, Jesus dipped the bread in and, and he knew that it was going to be Judas. And so Judas goes out and he goes to the Pharisees and he tells them where Jesus is going to be and then betrays him with a kiss. Betrays him with a kiss. Judas, we're going to put the blame on you. Well, why don't we put the, the blame on the unjust plots of the, the Jewish religious leaders? Because they were plotting against Jesus. What about Caiaphas? Man, he's the, he's the high priest. And what about Pilate, the Roman governor? Well, he is condemning to death an innocent man and he even knows that he's an innocent man and under the duress of all the Jewish leaders, he just said, well, there you go. And they crucify him. So why don't we blame him? Why don't we blame Pilate? We could even blame the Roman soldiers because they they nailed him to the cross. They taunted him. They mocked him, beat him. And even then, they sat at the bottom of the cross and gambled for his clothes. But you see, the blame, yes, it's on them, but you know what? We need to shift our thinking because all those people were guilty, but we are as guilty as they are. We are no less guilty. It was because of our sin that God's wrath, because he cannot be with sin, it's not possible for him to be with sin, and because of his wrath that needed appeasing, The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world steps in and takes our place when it was us who deserved the full penalty. You know, when Barabbas was standing there and Jesus was standing there and Pilate saying, who do you want? And they're saying, give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus. And he's going, what are you talking about? This guy's innocent. Well, we are Barabbas. He was the one that was released when he was guilty. He was the one that should have died and yet they sent Jesus. And when we read the various accounts of the cross, as I said, I've been reading them over and over again. It's the most powerful story that will ever be in the history of mankind because it changes history completely. And it's a, it has a profound effect on eternity. And we're immediately drawn, aren't we, to the incredible physical and emotional anguish that Jesus was put through in the six hours he endured on the cross from uh, 3 p.m. in the afternoon, uh, sorry, to 9 a.m. in the morning till 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And we understand the emotional anguish that he went through as he was mocked over and over again. Matthew 27, 39 to 44 says these things. Those who passed by hurled insults at him. Remember, this is the guy who'd just come into Jerusalem and they're waving palm branches not that long ago. You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. And in the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. 
Really? He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants to. For it said, he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. We know, of course, that one of them turned to him and had his life saved. And as I said, he could even hear the Roman soldiers at the bottom of the cross gambling and drawing lots for his clothes. The venomous mocking that he received was relentless. That's one thing. And then there's the physical pain that almost goes without saying. It was horrendous. Listen to this. This is how one writer describes it. I don't apologise for this. Imagine him, stripped and bound by the wrists to a column in Pilate's court, then scourged with whips containing balls of lead or bone chips. As they pound against his body, beads of blood form and with repeated blows break open into wounds. Then the crown of thorns is pressed onto his head and blood mingles with his matted hair. He tries to carry the cross. He staggers. Simon of Cyrene is pressed to help him. At Calvary, he is stripped of his clothes and excruciating pain like millions of hot needles shock the nervous system. Then he's hoisted into the cross itself as the executioners pound long square nails into his palms. He experiences the most unbearable pain a man can experience and each movement of his body revives this horrible pain. Then in Isaiah 52 and 14, Isaiah even prophesies this where he says his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. We've seen pictures of Christ on the cross and sometimes they are not gory enough, they're not gruesome enough because he was hardly recognisable. To die on a cross was horrible and often a slow death but the reality was it wasn't an uncommon death. Did you know that around 30,000 people were crucified by the Romans in this very same way every year. So this was not unique to Jesus, this form of torture. And I'm sure that many of these people were on the cross. They were probably taunted for other things as well. Yes, the emotional stress and the physical pain was unbearable. But if we stop at the physical and the emotional pain, we totally miss the point of Jesus' most intense point of suffering. This is something that's really come home to me over these last few days. We know the physical, we know the emotional, but if we stop there and we say, poor Jesus, that must have really hurt. Oh, look, that's unfair what they're saying to him. If we stop there, we completely miss the point because the huge spiritual suffering that endured is something that we will never be able to understand it's not possible for us to understand though we'll never know the spiritual agony that jesus experienced on the cross we do see hints of it when he's on the cross we know he makes seven statements and his fifth statement is my god my god why have you forsaken me jesus as a second person of the trinity and has had constant fellowship with the holy spirit with the father for eternity to this point So what must it be like for him now to have this relationship, this perfect relationship severed, broken? What must it have felt like that for Jesus to be separated from God? And our sin, our sin and past sin and sins that are to come 
are the things that broke for the first time ever the fellowship of the Godhead, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus, when sin separated him from God, unbelievable. You know, it's interesting because before this time, Jesus, when he prayed, what did he pray? Father, Father, Father. And now he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just like humans might call out, such was his anguish. Sin had now separated Jesus from God, where in eternity past there had been this warm fellowship and this loving relationship, and now there is just broken fellowship, a sense of deep and agonizing loss, a a hopeless despair, and this blackness of depravity. See, being the sinners that we are, I don't think we get this. We, we can't. I don't think we're expected to fully understand it because, see, we were born in sin and we become numb to sin too because as we're born, we're little kids and you see them, don't you? The little ones, they're beautiful and all of a sudden they start doing stuff because they're born into sin. We know they, and they understand that too and we become numb to sin and as we grow, our sin becomes great and we do not really grasp all of our life, the intimate connection with God that we have been made for. We lose that. We catch glimpses of it. So imagine now, Jesus having never sinned, never having known pain and fear of guilt, never having felt hate. Can you imagine this? He's never felt hate or lust. And now he's got this flood of sin of the whole world, past, present and future, placed on him in a few short hours on the cross. That is suffering. Every bad thought that there's ever been, every adulterous affair, every hateful word, every act of theft or bribery, every whisper of gossip, every murder, every act of disloyalty to a husband or to a wife, all of the sin of the world of all time placed on Jesus all at once. Jesus took it all. Jesus, who had never experienced the pain of sin, took it all at once in a a torrential downpour. It's beyond anything we can describe or understand, but we must talk about it so we know what our sin has actually done and so what the sacrifice that Jesus made has cost. So what's the result of this extraordinary and gracious act that God has set out from the beginning? Here's the good bit. I make no apologies for the way that I have expressed this this morning. It's Good Friday and we need to be reminded of these things. So what do we get? Our freedom from our sin. Yes, we will continue to sin, but no longer does it have dominion over people who belong to Christ because now we have a Saviour who has dealt with it once and for all, and we're able to come back and ask forgiveness of that sin. You see, here we were, and here was God, and here was this giant ravine between, which was sin, which we caused through disobedience. And so the Lamb of God who takes the sin of the world steps into this gap, and in obedience to his Father, hangs on the cross for all of our sin for all time and in doing so the father turns away from him. He cannot look upon his son and is separated at that time and he takes the sin of the world and dies 
And as a result of this act, God's wrath against sin and us is appeased. And so here we are and here is God and suddenly this bridge that Jesus has formed is here and we're able to come back and have fellowship with our Father again and we need to give him praise and thanks for that every day, otherwise we're lost. And then from John 19, 28, 30. Later, he's still on the cross here. Knowing that all was completed and so the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked the sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of a hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he'd received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. Consider that. It is finished. And he bowed and he gave up his spirit. Did it say they killed him? No. Who's in control here? He gave up his spirit. His redemptive plan for mankind was complete. In utter pain, but in glorious victory, he declares it is finished. A couple of days ago, I was speaking to a very good friend of mine who has had some very, very difficult long-term things happening in her life. And uh, we love her, we love her family, but it's been very, very difficult. And she disappeared for a little while and we couldn't work out what was going on. But when she disappears, she doesn't hide for the sake because she doesn't want to be around people. It's because things are so difficult she can't bear to be around people. But when she does that, she actually presses into God even closer, which is an amazing thing. And she rang me just a couple of days ago and we were talking through that and she said, you know what, every time I come to this dark place where I can't face certain things and so I have to press into God so closely, I'm drawn to the cross when I'm drawn to the cross, I'm drawn to one particular part of this story and that's where they are mocking him and they're saying, hey, if you're the son of God, come down off the cross, save yourself. And she said, and beautifully, he didn't. He stayed there for me. Of course he could have come down off the cross. But what would that have achieved? The saviour of the world stayed on the cross for us. And for those who have believed in Jesus and have repented of their sin, they've been forgiven and they've received the gift, the free gift of eternal life that is open to all mankind who would come and ask. And there's joy unspeakable because of that. You wouldn't know it looking at me right now, but there is. There is joy unspeakable in knowing the Saviour. But it's not easy either. People think that Christians are wimps. You know what? There's nothing harder in this world than following Christ. And in Matthew we're even told, whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. And for those of you who are here today who do not belong to Christ, 
I pray today that your hearts would be softened, that the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin and that you turn to Jesus in repentance and give your life to the Almighty God who is your only hope of salvation. The Father who gave his Son as a sacrifice for your sin and knows you and loves you like no other can. Like no other can. I want to pray and I want to... In fact, before we do that, I just want to spend two minutes. Zach, can I have that microphone? If there is somebody here who would like to share briefly about what Christ has done for them on the cross and what it actually means to their life, would you like to stand and testify to that today? Be bold and tell us what Christ has done as a result of his sacrifice for us on the cross. Is there somebody who'd like to, to, to testify to that? I'm open to hearing that because I'm encouraged by that as well. Anybody who would like to share something as small as it is? Thanks, Manuel. Yes, I'll come to you, Peter. This is Emmanuel. Hi. Uh, what the Lord has done for me is something that I will never forget. Uh, the salvation from number one. I have learned so much. And uh, again, uh, uh, talking about uh, torture and stuff like that. I have never experienced anything like that, but I experience sickness, and I experience his presence with me all the time. And I experience the people praying for me, and I experience how God can call Jesus, how gracious he is. Uh, patient, patient for us, and whatever we do, he forgive us, and whatever we forget. He will remind us all the time. So, so even the time that we had in sickness and stuff like that, I have learned to be drawn closer to himself. I have learned to, to love. I have learned to forgive. I have learned everything else to thank you, Jesus. Thanks, Emmanuel. Pete, share with us, mate. <clears throat> I've been a Christian now for uh, 33 years and I still from time to time pinch myself and say, why me, Lord? Um, because I'm aware. Um, every, uh, every day almost, um, and it's growing aware of my sinfulness. And I'm so thankful for his sacrifice that he died that I may know life. One other maybe wants to share? No? Yeah, okay, yeah. I'm just in absolute awe of who God is and the way he redeems and just the way he calls us his own even though we're so undeserving and ultimately he saves us from ourselves. So I just praise and thank him for what he has done. For those of you who don't know Christ, understand this. There is nothing you can do to deserve God's favour. There's nothing you can do because he has done it all. It's you believing and accepting Jesus and coming to him and saying, hey, I'm a sinner and I need to be saved from this. There is no other way to be rid of sin and it's the most wonderful, wonderful thing when it happens to a person. Incredible thing. Steve, do you want to finish for us, mate? Um, yeah. Had some pretty bad times of depression and... Your mind goes nuts and um, just no 
Ik in the world of sin, and when Jesus died on the cross, he took the brunt of that sin, so he took the brunt of that darkness, and that helps me to get through the darkness. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, Stephen. I'm going to pray and uh, finish. We're going to spend some time together here too. It's good for us, and I know it's been quite solemn in many respects, but it's important that on this day we remember that the cross is so important. It is the, the crux of our whole uh, faith in him to believe this and to know Jesus personally. And if that's you, if you don't know him today and you want to know him, uh, please, I'm happy to lead you to him today or somebody who's brought you with him. What a great, what a, what an incredible day on this grey, filthy day in the world and yet such a wonderful uh, day too uh, when Jesus has been able to save us. Let's, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, you had this amazing plan to save us from the beginning of time, Lord God. And we thank you for Jesus and we thank you that he was so willing, even though he knew what was coming up, Lord God, to go to the cross and not come down off that cross, but instead stay there and die for me and my sins, Lord God. I thank you that because of that, now I can come to you and have fellowship with you, the living God. And we do not take that lightly, Lord God. Would you forgive us when we do, Father, when we forget what you've really done. Will you forgive us for that and turn us to your word and turn us to prayer, to our knees, Lord God, that we might humbly come before you and be thankful for the work that you have done that we could never do ourselves. So, Father, on this day, on this Good Friday, we give you thanks and praise and glory for doing this work for us. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.